text this morning is Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. Luke 4, 1 through 13. We've been taking some extensive, or extensive time through this passage of Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness. So let's watch him overcome Satan's best attempts one more time this morning. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not worship, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you give us insight and wisdom uh, into Satan's temptation to doubt your goodness. Father, I pray that we would rejoice as we see our victorious Christ uh, defeating every temptation. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, we know that he went and ultimately defeated the devil on the cross and defeated death, the punishment for sin, as he rose from the grave. And so, Father, I pray that you, you uh, strengthen our faith. Lord, I pray that you help us trust you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, this is our last sermon uh, going through the temptations. Uh, next Sunday, we'll have an Easter message. We'll see Christ's ultimate victory uh, over Satan as uh, he defeats death. And the ultimate weapon uh, Satan has, which is to accuse you and I, of our sin and the impending death. And uh, we'll see next week how Christ rips that weapon away from Satan and uh, gives us victory by his mercy and grace. Many of you have heard the saying, it's not what you know, but who you know in life. What's more important in life is who you know, what advantages you get by knowing somebody, by having an in, than 
what you know. Christianity could be described the same way, I think. Christianity is not so much what you know, but who you know and who you trust in. No one can be saved apart from knowledge, but knowledge can save nobody. God gives His grace through faith. You have to have knowledge of God to trust Him. You have to have knowledge of Christ to trust Christ. But salvation is in whom you know. Now, I know that in a room this size and understanding what it's like living in the fa- in a fallen world, it's easy to distrust God's goodness because of the difficult circumstances of life. I don't know what it is for you, but you know. You have questions in your mind where you think, if God is good, Why do these sorts of things happen? It doesn't happen to this person, but it happens to this person. Maybe it's losing a job. Maybe it's losing a family member. Maybe it's a certain illness that you have. Maybe it's the fact that one of your children are not saved. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that all of you are going to be tempted to doubt God's goodness because of the suffering you've gone through in the fallen world. And the drive of what I want you to know today is not that peace or that God's goodness towards you comes through you knowing why your life circumstances are the way they are, but rather knowing that God is good. You may never know this side of heaven why you suffer the way you do. But that doesn't mean you need to lack trust in God. You can know God is good without knowing all the reasons of why your life is playing out the way it is. And the ultimate reason that we'll look at later is because of Christ. When we look at Christ, we know that God is being good to us, even if we don't understand God's plan for our suffering, the things we've gone through. Many of you, your relationship right now with God is hindered Maybe some of you don't have a relationship with God because you are thinking about this certain thing that God has done that you don't understand and you don't know if you can trust Him. My prayer is that you will see in these temptations Satan's plan. His game plan is to get you to doubt God's goodness and to to take your eyes off what God's word has promised you and has said to you. So today's going to be a little bit of uh, 
we're going we're to review because it's going to help us understand the last temptation. We, we've seen temptation one, we've seen temptation two, but you're going to be amazed at how tricky and deceptive Satan is as we look at the third temptation in this text. But before we do that, I want us to take the grand uh, trip back in time all the way to this pinnacle point of creation when God created Adam and Eve and this this beautiful creation. He called it good. Man finally gets his wife at this great high point. Temptation comes. Satan shows up in the garden and he gets Adam and Eve to doubt God's provision for them. Now, this temptation is in the garden where they can eat any food in the whole garden. Jesus's temptation is more difficult. Adam and Eve could eat from any tree in the garden, but God said, don't eat from the tree in the middle. And Satan comes to them and says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? He's twisting God's word there. He said, no, we can eat from every tree except this one. He says, that's because God doesn't want you to have knowledge. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. Think how silly this temptation is. God is, isn't providing for you. Look at this garden God has given them, but they doubt God's plan and, and God's word and they sin. They fall into the temptation and doubt the goodness of God. But the goodness of God comes onto the scene right after this in the curse that God puts on, on Satan. And <laughs> you hear me say this all the time. But it's so important to understand the Bible is one grand narrative that helps us understand everything about our life, about where sin came from, where the fall came from, why people die, why children get cancer. As we go back to Genesis, we understand the world we live in. But here's what he says to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise that Satan, who brought this temptation into the garden, that tempted Adam and Eve to sin and to fall, and therefore death came into the world. There's a promise that from a woman, a offspring is going to come, and that offspring is going to step on the head of this snake reverse the curse, and restore peace. <laughs> the, the last chapters in our Bible were back in a garden with no more sin, no more evil, with God dwelling in their presence. So we get this promise right after the first temptation. And that promise came in the person of Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son who never had a beginning. God is Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God 
in three persons. It's called the incarnation when Jesus becomes a man. Jesus, God's eternal son, comes to us, born of a woman, in his incarnation, this is important to understand these temptations, he willingly laid down the independent use of his divine attributes to become a man and submitted wholly to the Father's will and the power of the Spirit like any other man must. His incarnation is called his humiliation. He let glory go. He said, I'm going to become a man. And he came to serve, to suffer, and to save. So Jesus came down not to do his will, but his Father's will. He laid down willingly his right to do what he wanted, And he came down and said, I'll do whatever the Father wants me to do. And I'm not going to do it in my own way, in my own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. These temptations of Satan are trying to divide the Trinity, trying to get Jesus not to trust his Father's plan and not to do things by the power of the Spirit, but to do it in his own strength. Get out of this plan of suffering and be blessed. This is what Satan's trying to do. If Satan could could drive a wedge into Trinity, if Satan could cause Jesus to sin, then there's no hope of salvation for you or me because we need a perfect sacrifice. Jesus came to suffer and to die, to do the will of his Father in the power of the Spirit. And you have this high point at Jesus' baptism right before the start of his ministry when the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form and like a dove, a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, so this is the Father speaking, with you I am well pleased. Right before this temptation, there's a spiritual high point in Jesus' life where God the Father says, you're my son. With you, I am well pleased. But then Satan comes to tempt Christ as for 40 days Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He's not tricked by Satan. He's going out to do battle with Satan. And he's led into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he doesn't eat. He fasts for 40 days, and at the end of those 40 days, throughout that whole time, he was no doubt being tempted, but we're brought in at the end of those 40 days to these three specific temptations, and The first one that we looked at, Satan comes to Jesus. He knows he's hungry. When Jesus hungered, Satan came to him, and he said, turn these stones into bread. Get out of this plan of following your father's will. You're hungry. 
Don't trust your father's promises. He's poorly provided for you. Look, you've been 40 days in the wilderness and you haven't eaten. It's as if Satan's saying, rebellious Israel was 40 years in the wilderness and God gave them bread. You really think you're the father's son when you're starving, you're going to die in the wilderness? But Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. Jesus knows God's word. He fights this temptation with Scripture. And here's what Jesus knows. Jesus remembered that Israel died in the wilderness, not because they lacked bread, but because they doubted God's word and his promises of blessing and provision for them. When Jesus says man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus says the way a man lives is he trusts the Father that the Father will provide and that he gives our daily bread. That's why in the prayer that we're taught, we're not told to go get our bread in the sense, in our own strength, in our own power. Yes, we're to work. We're not to test God as we're going to see in this sermon. But we're to see that provision comes from God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Jesus knew that Israel died in the wilderness because they doubted God's word. Satan's temptation to you is to doubt God's goodness. He said to Jesus, you're hungry. 40 days in the wilderness. You think God's good? What is it for you? What is it that he comes and tempts you with to doubt the goodness of God? Will you trust his promises and provision? Or are you going to die fact and go get your own meal and live your own way that leads to death? just like it did for Israel. The second, so the first temptation is you can't trust your father's promises. He's provided poorly for you. The second one, the second temptation, Satan is basically saying you can't trust your father. He's poorly planned your life. What's before you is the cross. What before, what's before you is suffering. You came to rule over the nations, but in your father's plan, you have to go through all this suffering. Satan knew, Jesus knew the Old Testament and all the prophecies and all the suffering that was going to come. The Messiah was going to suffer and die to get this reign. Satan comes and says, have it right now. I'll give you all the kingdoms without the suffering. Your father isn't good. He doesn't provide food for you. And his plan is for you to suffer. And you should trust me. I don't want suffering for you. Worship me. Am I not more worthy to worship? Satan is saying in this second temptation. Am I not the one you should trust that you should listen to? Now think about it. Satan is pointing to real life circumstances. 
that are true. Jesus is hungry. He is in the wilderness. He does have suffering before him. So all that equals God is not good, right? Wrong. That's not true. God's promises of good for us are true. And God's plan of suffering is also good for us, even though it's contrary to our flesh. So Jesus' response to the second temptation is, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Now, this week, it was it was amazing as I was thinking about last week's sermon, and and God helped me see how tricky Satan is, even more than what I said last week. Right after a spiritual high, when God says, "You're my son," Jesus is tempted by Satan to doubt that he has a good father, that he is actually God's son that's going to be provided for. Right after spiritual high, here comes Satan's temptation. The spiritual high is God saying something true about Christ and then temptation to avoid suffering, to avoid the plan. And then you have later, at the end of this text, it says that uh, Satan left him and until an opportune time. Well, Satan came and tempted Jesus all throughout his ministry, but another one of those times that we looked at a little bit last week is when Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, up to this point, the only people that have declared who Jesus was correctly was the demons. They would come into contact with Jesus and they'd cry out and say, I know who you are, the Holy Son of God, the the Holy One of God. I know who you are. Jesus would tell them to be quiet. Jesus is going to reveal who he is. But he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? No human being on the face of the earth yet has confirmed, other than John the Baptist pointing towards him, this is him. Here we have the culmination of one of the disciples making the declaration. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Now get this. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you're right, Peter. Don't think you're smarter than the other disciples, but my Father revealed this to you in heaven. So who said it? The Father was speaking truth through Peter, correct? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. Here's another high point where Jesus knows God the Father says, this is who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And right after this, Jesus talks about his plan to suffer. In verse 21 of Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now the same disciple, but he, he began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. You shall not go to the cross. You shall not suffer. You shall not die. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're setting your mind on the things of, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I want to give you two of your application points here. First, what do we learn from this? Satan often attacks right after a spiritual, spiritual high points and at times of physical weaknesses. He knows you're going to be weak when you think you're strong. As you have a spiritual high point in your life, get ready. Don't let up for an attack may be coming. When you're physically weak or hungry or in a wilderness, be ready. When you're tired, be ready. Remember Matthew 26, 41, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They're falling asleep. He says, be careful. You're weak now. The second is this. So the first is recognize when Satan attacks, high points in, in physical weakness. And second, you must discern the Father's voice from Satan's voice. Here's why Satan's so tricky. Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, God's speaking in you, Peter. And right in that moment, it's as if Satan said, this is how I'm going to get Jesus. Jesus trusts Peter right now. He's the first man to speak truth about me in that way. He knows I'm the Christ. And a half a second later, Satan is speaking through Peter, and Jesus knows it. He hears it. He knows God's word. He knows Satan's word. And here's what you need to know in this second application point. The same people whom you trust and whom love you and whom speak the word of God to you can be the same people that Satan speaks through. And how are you going to discern when they're speaking truth to you, when it's God's voice and when it's Satan's voice? Well, Satan says, take the easy way. Avoid suffering. Is this really God's plan for your life? This can't be God's plan. And what makes Jesus Jesus is he's never in the dark. He hears it. (laughs) One sentence, 
That's my father. Next sentence, that's Satan. He knows God's word and he knows what God has sent him to do. So it was easy when Peter says, you must not go to the cross. He knew Peter was thinking earthly minded. He was only thinking about the flesh. He wasn't thinking from God's perspective. And now we're going to see how tricky Satan is in this third temptation. (laughs) The first two temptations, he says, you can't trust God. He's poorly provided for you. You can't trust God. He's poorly planned your life. And both times, Jesus defeats that temptation by saying it is written and quoting Deuteronomy to him. And Satan's smart. And he's deceptive. And he says, okay, I'm not going to... Jesus is always going to go with God's Word. Jesus is always going to go with it is written. So look at this third temptation. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which most people think it's the... uh the, the certain corner of the Temple Mount, which would, would have been 400 feet above the Kid, Kidron Valley. He, he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. <laughs> the same words Jesus use, uses, now Satan uses. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you strike a foot against a stone. He quotes two verses, verses 10 and 11 from Psalm, or verses 11 and 12 from Psalm 91, a messianic psalm. He's essentially saying this, Jesus Come up here on the pinnacle. Jump off. Trust God. He will provide for you. And this is his plan. He quotes a messianic psalm and says, if you jump from here, God's word says it. You have to believe God's word. His angels are going to come. He's going to sweep you. They're going to sweep you up. You won't touch your foot against any stone. He's saying, oh, you trust God's word, huh? Let's see your faith in action here. If you trust God's word, throw yourself down. Don't you trust it? Don't you want to prove that God's word is true? The first two temptations, don't trust God. He's poorly provided. Don't trust God. He has a poor plan. The third temptation, trust God. He's provided for you. And this is his plan for you. Now, let's just, let's just admit Satan is deceptive. Prove your faith. If you're the Messiah, fulfill what God has prophesied about your life. Throw yourself down from this pinnacle. Now, here's the thing. Jesus 
is the incarnate Son of God, incarnate in that he's a real man. And you want to know what happens when real men jump off 400-foot cliffs? They die. Just like when the same real man gets nailed to the cross and a spear gets shoved in his side, he dies. Satan is trying to kill Christ before he gets to the cross. And the trick is to presumptuously presume upon God's promises and his word. It's tricky. It seems like exercising great faith and proving that God's word is true. What does this look like in the real world? Well, here's the Yahoo headline I saw last night. There's a pastor named Arceli Meza, 52 years old. Uh, I believe she's from Arizona. And she just got sentenced to 99 years in prison because she took a boy in her church and convinced her parents, that a, a little toddler, that the toddler had a demon inside him. And she said, God told me that the only way to cast the demon out is for this child to fast until it comes out. So for three weeks, this woman of great faith presuming upon God's promises, starves a three-year-old to death. Testing God. God did not tell her that. Satan did. He came to deceive. He came to kill. He came to destroy And at the end of his lies and his presumptuous promises is death. (laughs) I was listening to John MacArthur on this topic, and he talked about how one time Benny Hinn said the Lord told him that God was going to raise a bunch of people from the dead through TBN, the Trinity Broadcast Network, and if anyone in your family has died recently, take your family members, drape their arms over the TV for 24 hours, and they'll be raised from the dead. One family brought their dead child in ice to one of his conferences so that they could be raised from the dead. Now, here's what Satan does. He twists the Scripture to get us to presume and test God in his promises. It's not what God's saying. And then when it ends in death, he says, see, you can't trust God. (laughs) You can't trust his word. So he'll get you to doubt God by doubting his goodness or by saying, prove your faith in his goodness. He'll play both sides of the coin to try to get us to not trust God. Why does Jesus need to test God's word? 
God's always spoken truth. And besides, Jesus doesn't force the issue to prove God's word true. He listens to his father and he follows the leading of his spirit. And this is not God's will for him to throw himself from the temple. He would die. There's death at the end of these temptations. But you tell me, there's a whole realm of Christianity, of charismatic Christianity that is doing, falling to this temptation right and left, taking promises of God and saying, They're going to be fulfilled right here, right now. Name it and claim it. That's a little different in whatever your will is, Father. I'll do it in your power, Holy Spirit. You see the difference? Jesus' life on earth is this humble following of God's plan for him. We do fall to this temptation any time we know God's promises and presume to know the timing and nature of its fulfillment. When you're The reason why you're doubting God may be because you looked at a promise of God and said, if he's good, my child will be healed. And you tested God and your child died. And therefore, maybe... That's the reason you don't trust he's good. That would mean you have fallen to this third temptation. Here's what the Bible says. Philippians. Or let me give one more example of what this might look like. Someone might read Philippians 4.19 that says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Now, let's say someone just lost their job and they read this verse. They were going to get up and go apply for jobs all day, but they read this verse in devotions and says, you know what? God's going to provide my every need according to his riches and glory. I'm not going to go get my job. That's presuming upon God's promises. That's testing God. That's wicked. Because God tells us in all sorts of other places that we're to work hard, that we're responsible for our lives. (laughs) And supply your every need of yours according to his riches and glory. That person's need that day might be the fact that they're starving two days from now because they don't have any money. That might be how God provides for that faithless falling to temptation. But we can read verses like that and think. We know how God fulfills those. But here's what the Bible continually shows us. Your greatest need is to know God's Word and that He's good more than to know the whys of the way things are. Uh, There's a saying that people say, You must know that God's Word is truer than your feelings. We walk by faith. We don't walk by our feelings. I'll give you an example. Jesus, right before He went to the cross, when He's in the garden, He said this to His disciples, My soul 
is very sorrowful, even to death. That's how Jesus feels. Remain here. Watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, he believes he has a Father that's good. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's a little different than naming or claiming, isn't it? Jesus feels like he's about to take on the sin of the world and absorb the wrath of God because he is. He says, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will be done. And he came to his disciples, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This is Jesus winning all the way to the end of his life saying, I'm not going to do what I feel like doing. Avoiding suffering. I am going to fulfill your plan. Because here's what Jesus knew. Suffering comes first. Glory comes later. That's why Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. But... Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Rejoice in your suffering now because glory is coming. He told Israel, I'm taking you to a good promised land. Yeah, you're in the wilderness now and you have manna and you and you don't have a wide variety of food, but here's where I'm taking you. Right now you're suffering a little bit, but I am caring for you. And I'm taking you to glory. Don't be surprised, Christians. When you got saved, you weren't transcended into the new heavens and new earth. You take on Christ and you suffer trusting God's promises more than your feelings. Trust God's word. Now listen, his provision for you is Christ. He is the bread of life. His plan for you is to trust him. To trust and believe in Christ. And his timing is this. Cross now, glory later. He didn't promise we wouldn't suffer. He didn't promise it would be easy, but he promised he would never leave us or forsake us. He promised that just as Christ was raised in glory, we will be raised in glory. So when the temptation comes to doubt God's goodness, 
I want you to look to Christ. That's the third application point. Because here's the thing. You might not know why your circumstances are happening the way they're happening, but if you look at God's most valuable thing to him is eternal son who's never done anything wrong. And the Bible tells us God in his love gave the thing that was most valuable to him, to us. He became a man. Your suffering on this earth will never exceed his suffering. We deserve our suffering. He never deserved his suffering. He came down, suffered more than any other man, and he died in your place. So you might not get the answer to why you're suffering in your present circumstances, but you can know he's good because he gave you Christ for you to take your sins, to give you what you don't deserve, reward for the life you never lived. Because when you believe in Jesus, his perfect life is transferred to your account in heaven. And your sins were transferred to him on the cross. You get rewarded, he gets punished. And yet, Satan is so tricky that on this side of the cross, we can begin to believe that God isn't good and that he doesn't love us. How great a deceiver he is. I'll show you how Paul says it. Romans 8.31 What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You got that? Are you listening? I know it's the end of the sermon. He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for you, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gives us the best thing, how is he not going to give us all things? You say, yeah, but look at I'm suffering right now. Well, that's good for you right now. Because the verses right before this says he works all things together for good to those who love the Lord. Jesus believed in the wilderness that God was being good to him. If he gives you the best thing, then he's only going to do good for you. And this time is short. Right before this, he says, For I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's glory coming. It's not a good comparison. But then he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is going to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Listen, the risen Christ is at God's right hand, praying for you, interceding for you every day. You tell me God's not good to you. That's what he lives to do, to intercede for you and I. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now get this. Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, shall danger or sword? As it is written, here's what your life on this earth looks like. 
For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all, no. None of these things will separate us from the love of Christ. Now get this. In, not from, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In your suffering, God is making you and I conquerors in Christ. Now here's how I want to finish. Satan plucked Psalm 91, two verses. 11 and 12. And he quoted those to try to trick Jesus. I know why he didn't pluck out verse 13, the very next verse. Let me read it to you. And we can celebrate. I'll read you the verses he read and then the following verse. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder. So here's the deal. When you're in the wilderness, you're afraid of wild beasts eating you or stepping next to a snake and it biting you. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample under foot. See, we're back to Genesis, aren't we? When you have the victorious Christ coming out of this wilderness, <laughs> trampling on the head of the serpent that's going to culminate. Next week's Easter sermon, we're going to look at how Christ's death and resurrection destroys Satan and his attacks that he puts on us how he takes away the accusation for sin and he takes away the death that's promised sin when we're promised the resurrection uh, that as Christ raised. Father, thank you so much that you give us your word to even understand how Satan attacks us, how he tempts us, how tricky he can be. Father, I pray that no one here would doubt your goodness because they're presently suffering. But Lord, I pray that they would, like Christ, cling to what is true, even when they don't feel it in the moment. Because we know your word is always true. And so, Lord, we are waiting for Christ. We're waiting for the day when he returns, when sin will no longer reign on this earth. Justice will come. We're waiting for that, Lord. But we're waiting patiently, meanwhile clinging to your promises. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.